We are going to have our reading. Um, It's from Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there shall be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, whom you brought up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why would your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Israel to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God, The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. Then Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. And then he ground it into powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to do evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild 
and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to him, this is what the Lord, your God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin, for if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Then the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sins. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Laura, for leading us and reading that very somber passage. Uh, please have your Bibles open so we can look at it together um, as we have that scripture in front of us in continuing this series in Exodus 32, um, in the book of Exodus and here in chapter 32. We use um, the term disaster on quite a different scale, don't we? What counts as a disaster for you? We can use it quite flippantly, I suppose, sort of like today coming out of church. Isn't it a disaster that it's pouring with rain and I'm going to get wet as I walk home? Or uh, the printer isn't working and I can't print up that document I need for tomorrow morning. It's a disaster. The car breaking down on the way to an important work meeting is a disaster. But then you think about it in different contexts over the recent weeks, just in some parts of this nation, families have been... Uh, moved out of their homes because of flooding. that's come in and ruined livelihoods, businesses, homes. That's a disaster. What about what's going on in the world at large? And we see the conflicts around happening in the Middle East right now, the disastrous impact of two nations, peoples fighting over land, over the right to live where they want and the devastation that has caused both for Israelis and Palestinians. We can't help but read the Old Testament and think, Lord, what do you think is going on? This is disastrous. And then there are the things that hit our world, our news headlines, coronavirus, previous century thinking about things. And it's interesting that in 1912, there was something that really rocked the Western world, particularly the UK and the USA. The sinking of the Titanic. Happened four days into its maiden voyage. Struck an iceberg. This still remains the single deadliest peacetime maritime disaster in modern history. 
The ship was a glittering reflection of the age of luxury. The one employee of the White Star Line, the company that owned Titanic, allegedly said, not even God Almighty could sink this ship. That's how confident they were. 17 millionaires were on board. A one-way ticket cost 800 pounds, which by today's prices is about 112,000 pounds. And yet there were those who had scraped and saved enough for a third-class ticket of two pounds, which is still at 281 pounds by today's standards, and looking for a new life in the U.S. And within three hours, she had sunk into the icy Atlantic, taking over 1,500 lives of passengers and crew. James Cameron, the director of that blockbuster film, Titanic, which winds me up, something rotten when it's on, but there. <laughs> um, he said this, 1912 was a very interesting time. There was no end to what man could do. Everything was going to get better and better, nicer and nicer. And what was in store for the people beyond that first decade? Two world wars, nuclear weapons, and all that many problems that we live with. Titanic is a wonderful, he said, or I would say maybe a more sober and poignant metaphor for all that. No end to what man could do. The sinking of a ship that epitomized everything of leisure, pleasure, wealth, success, luxury, sinking into the dark depths of the Atlantic. And here in Exodus 32... The spiritual climactic disaster in this book is right here, front and center for us, showing the damage of what man can do spiritually. It is the great sin that reverberates throughout the books of the Old Testament. It's a catastrophic rebellion against God since the Garden of Eden. Reflecting on this, centuries later, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 106 these words, at Horeb. That's the name for Sinai. They made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God, literally their glory, for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt. They forgot God. And so as we come to this chapter, we have to deal with some pretty painful things. We have to look at the perversity of idolatry. We have to look at the pain of it, the pain that it causes. But we'll also point forward to a power that overthrows idolatry in relationship with the true God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So, let's uh, have our Bibles open and have a look at this first point, the perversity of idolatry, forgetting God. Now, up to this point in Exodus, we've seen the Lord God work powerfully to rescue Israel. These enslaved Israelites from the superpower Egypt have been brought into the desert of Sinai where they can meet with him, where they can enjoy his presence and worship. But along the way, Israel seems to behave either like a young child or a petulant teenager or a discontent, grumpy adult. They've grumbled, they've quarreled, they've tested the Lord at different stages. And at one point, they even, as he's provided manna for them, this food and quail to sustain them during their, their desert time, they refuse to keep his commands, even to stop working on the Sabbath and collecting food. 
Because they still think, oh no, we still need some, even though he's provided for both days. But Israel hadn't rebelled in such a way as we see here in chapter 32. They hadn't rebelled in such a way that drew God's settled righteous anger, his wrath upon them. And what makes chapter 32 so shocking is that Israel has just heard God's voice. Chapter 19 records that. They'd, from the summit of Sinai, they hear God speak to them. And they retreat. They see the smoke, the fire, the cloud. They felt the violent tremors at the bottom of the mountain. And they've also pledged to give themselves in service to the Lord, to do what he says three times. Exodus 19 verse 8, we will do everything the Lord says. 24 verse 3 and 24 verse 7 as we were looking at last week. And I appreciate it's tempting to look down on them, to read this at a distance, go, oh, these foolish people. We're so much better. But the disaster of the golden calf reveals that every human heart is an idol factory. Every human heart is an idol factory. And there's a subtle trigger, isn't there? It's very rare that someone just wakes up in the morning and decides just to throw a massive wrecking ball into their career or their home life by defrauding the company or having an affair or gambling their savings. You see, that, that doesn't just happen in a split-moment decision. It is something those seeds of destruction are sown a long time before with niggling fears and seemingly small yet toxic compromises along the way. Look at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. You see, the people are impatient. We know that Moses has been up the mountain for a long time. We're told that in chapter 24, 18, it's going to be 40 days and 40 nights. But in real time for Aaron, her, the elders, the people, they didn't know that. They just knew he was on that mountain somewhere. It's not as if they could schedule a welcome home party for six weeks' time for him. And the Hebrew for that word, so long, seems to have the hint of longing and confusion. There's anxiety that is settling in. But it's more than that. It's more than anxiety. Things are tense. There's a darkness there. For the, the Hebrew words translated gathered around actually suggest hostility in the crowd. Hostility as they come around Aaron. There's derision about this fellow Moses. Where is he? He's obviously left us. He's, it, maybe he's dead. Now what are we to do here, abandoned at the base of this mountain? Who will go before us? Where's God's presence? Who's going to lead us? You see, their representative between the community and God isn't here. Have we lost contact with God then? What are we going to do? The root problem, as we've seen earlier, back in chapter 14, again, is a lack of trust in God. That is the root problem. The perversity of idolatry is seen in Aaron's response, in his answer. Let's make a pagan representation of God. He scrambles to create some sort of ritual order that will satisfy people's cravings. There's a sinful twistedness seen in the golden jewelry. You know, give us your earrings. 
that they use on the calf. These treasures were given to the people as they exited Egypt, which was part of God's gift, part of his plan. And these gifts, this, the ornaments, the jewelry, the gold, was intended by God to be used for the right building project, the right construction of the tabernacle that has just been written about in the chapters before what Moses is receiving from the Lord. The gold was to be used in worship, yes, but the way the Lord says, to cover the Ark of the Covenant, which is the footstool of his throne, the representation of the footstool of his throne in the Holy of Holies as we get to the tabernacle. And the choice of a calf is not random. It's a common idol in ancient Near East. It's also, interestingly, when you look at the references in Ezekiel, the calf, the bull, is a face that's on the throne, the the chariot throne, before the Lord God in Ezekiel. And it's the face of a cherub. The cherub are described as having bull-like faces, human faces, a face of an eagle as well. And it's interesting that there might be a perverted twist there of something that is so close to Yahweh, but not quite. But even if they're just borrowing from the ancient Near Eastern culture and, and how Egypt did things, we can see that this, it looks good, but it's just so off key. It sounds religious and holy, but it's so deadly. You see, that calf which in ancient Near Eastern times would have functioned as a pedestal, again, saying God, the God is seated around here. The calf is a two fingers up to the Ark of the Covenant. It's an analogy for that. And, and this deception of idolatry, it sounds so right and so okay, doesn't it? We don't actually think that this gold calf brought us out of Egypt. The people don't think that. Israel aren't saying that. They're not saying, oh, it's now all about here. What they are saying is, but now we have the Lord's presence here in this calf. We've got the connector point with us. And even Aaron's excuses in verses 22 to 24, can we see they shift the blame onto the people again? He's blind to his own active participation in this. This is the perversity of idolatry. It's not me. It's not my fault. These people around me. You know, he's, he's responding to the peer pressure at that point. And what does he say? He says, if by magic this gold calf comes out of the fire. No recollection of his active taking it, ordering it, using tools with others. It might sound so reasonable, but it's an offense that is horrendous because it disobeys what God has said. He's already given it in his Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven and earth or the sea. You shall not bow down to them. Chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, we have that. This is what Moses read out to them. It's what they agreed to. And you see, it's painful because God has already determined in Genesis 1 that his image bearers are men and women. That's what he's decided right at creation. Human beings are blessed, they're commissioned to live and rule God's creation, living under his good rule. 
living according to his word in worship. They were never meant to exchange worshipping the creator for the worship of created things. Don't chase after the creatures. The idolatry is seen here as well as Aaron built an altar and places it in front of the calf. It's a crass rejection of what Moses just did with the altar at the foot of the mountain as we looked at in Exodus 24, confirming the covenant that God has given. It's seen in the festival to the Lord that Aaron says, let's, let's have a festival, verse 5. They rise early, they sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Can you hear the echoes? That's exactly what Moses did back in Exodus 24, verses 4 and 6. They even celebrate with a meal. But unlike the meal the elders had on the mountain in, in the Lord's presence, no, this is far from anything to do with gratitude and reverence. They indulge in revelry. And that word there is deliberate. Paul interprets that in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 7 to 8, as this. He says, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Listen to what he says next as he explains that. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. The revelry wasn't just like, I'll have two slices of cake rather than one. It was, oh, I'll take your wife as well. It was as brazen as that. And we'll do it as worship. We'll do it for the Lord. It's crazy. It's twisted. It's perverse. Human beings are created as worshippers. We're created by a God who has meant us to find our joy, our satisfaction, our delight, our love in him. To worship. We will worship God or we will worship something created. There will always be something there. Every human personality, every human community, every human thought form will be based on some ultimate concern. Some ultimate allegiance to something. So Rebecca Pippett, who is an author and evangelist, she puts it like this. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We're controlled by whatever the Lord of our life is. Now, I know that sounds extremely irritating and confrontational in our culture. I'm not controlled by anything because we're all about freedom. But as we're seeing here in God's word, freedom comes by being in loving, ruled relationship with the Lord who knows us and creates us. We're never free to do what we just want to do. And when we do, that leads to disaster. It's interesting that the theologian G.K. Beale actually argues that in idolatry, we become the things spiritually that we're worshipping. That's what consumes us. And he says there are clues in this chapter that actually Israel become calf-like, animal-like. So in verse 8, they quickly turn away, literally away from the Lord's way, his command, like an untrained heifer, they're, they're, they're turning away, not, not like going up and down straight in a field, 
They're just running around wherever they want. They're stiff-necked in verse 9. That phrase, that word is the first time it comes up here, stiff-necked. It means they won't wear the yoke. They're, they're the heifer that's going, no, I'll just do what I want. They're not submissive. They fight for control. Verse 25, they're described as running wild, out of control. Again, it's the picture of the animal in the field just tearing around, indulging whatever appetites they want satisfying. Fundamentally, for them and us, there is a problem of the human heart here, where our life-ruling, mega-desires take control. And we just say, oh, well, that's how, I, that's how I am. That's how I'm made. So we've already ticked the box on I can't control that. <laughs> and I am being controlled. You see, money, money and wealth has always been an idol for humanity. It's interesting, the gold that's used here shows the value. We put our valuable treasures into making this valuable thing. Where's the money being and the treasure being directed? To whom? And you know, that it's an idol that the church is not immune to. And yet, money can be a way of satisfying other different idols. As Tim Keller points out, that some people want money to get control of their world. For that person, the greatest nightmare is uncertainty. Their problem emotion is worry. And they can often make people feel condemned as that starts operating in just everyday life. And so when it comes to money, this person probably saves and hoards and has everything tightly in its place. The last thing they would do is go on a spending spree. But this is a way of being in control. Others want money for approval. Their, their greatest nightmare is to be rejected. Therefore, they can often make people feel smothered because they want people around, so I've got to be in your life. I've got to be the go-to person. And their problem emotion is cowardice. Can't challenge anything. Can't point out where the relationship's wrong, where, where there's things that are going, because if you reject me, how am I going to carry on? Well, what does that look like with money? Therefore, generosity, which is a great thing, can be the result of it, but in a slightly different way. So it's spending to get people to like you. Rather than spending just to bless, just to, to give, not to receive. Now, the challenge is that these false treasures, they abound everywhere. In a fallen world, human praise, which is good, can be a God thing. Possessions, sensual pleasures, professional achievements, these things that find their right place in the right way as God ordains can become poisonous when they take God's place. And even more dangerous to our souls are false religious systems that promise a spiritual path that fits with your life, that is your way that fits around your values and your dreams and desires and yet leads to destruction. This is where we have to go next, the pain of idolatry. This is a warning. There is a cost to idolatry. The judgment is clear, isn't it? Look at verses 9 and 10. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, 
and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. The Lord cannot ignore the corruption of his people. He can't turn a blind eye to sin. When we think of anger, we usually picture someone losing their temper. We've all done that. We've all been on the receiving end of that. And after all, when Moses came down the mountain and he saw this rabble for the first time and what was going on, what was his reaction? His anger burned. And he smashes the tablets, verse 19, the work of God with his commandments. He smashes them. Now, it'd be easy to think that this was just some hot-headed loss of control, like someone kicking over a table or throwing a pint glass in a pub brawl. But no, Moses' anger here is a visual prophetic statement to the people that they have broken the covenant. It's over. The word of God, which you said yes to, poof, it's done. Look at what you've done. You have smashed these tablets. The work of God is smashed because they broke their word. This is a really tragic and painful moment. And yet, here is God saying, leave me so my anger may burn. He doesn't lose his temper. When he reveals his anger, he leaves it on simmer. He is slow to anger. With the prophet Isaiah in chapter 1, verse 18, several centuries later, he invites rebellious Israel to return and reason with him. He can be persuaded to turn from his anger. And here on Mount Sinai, Moses is quick to mediate. He's quick to intercede for the people. He is growing in his shepherd heart for the people. He pleads on the basis of God's honor. Why let Egypt mock you, verse 12? And on the basis of God's promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them an inheritance, to make them a nation that will bless others. Remember your promises, Lord, verse 13. You see, God is true to himself. He's true to his word. His unchanging plan is to save people for himself from all nations. And even though he could rightfully wipe out the Hebrews in a flood-like way, there and then, even though he could start over afresh with Moses, with the remnant of Moses, to make a people that will be his, he shows mercy. And yet there is a real cost to the rebellion in the camp. Sin is punished. That calf, what happens to it? It's destroyed. We get this lovely, literal rhythm to it. It's destroyed. It's burned. It's ground into powder. It's scattered into the water, which the Israelites, probably the ringleaders, probably the rabble right at the center, involved in the worst excesses, they're, they're drinking it. But why are they drinking this water? This is punishment one. Some say maybe it was a test, like test the guilty that you see later in Numbers 5. I wonder whether just from, as I was reading scripture, thinking, yeah, it could be the test, or it could just be Moses saying, you know what happened just several weeks ago when there was bitter water and you had nothing to drink, the Lord made it healthy. He made it sweet water. And now, 
I'm showing you what you get when you follow something other than God. There's bitter water here. You want to worship your idol? Have the fruit. The golden calf is nothing more than a bitter, death-bringing drink. Either way, whether it's a test, like Numbers 5, whether it's a picture, it's a prelude to the judgment for sin. So Moses has stood at the entrance of the camp and he said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. The gate, the entrance of the camp is the place where justice was dealt with. It's the tribunal, it's the court. And here Moses challenged the people to make a decision, stand for the Lord or continue with this pagan practice. And to be for the Lord meant rejection of the pagan gods. The people could not choose to combine the worship of the Lord with the worship of a pagan god. You can't do that. That is not allowed. Likewise, Christian, don't think you can just take bits of the gospel and mix it in with a whole bunch of other stuff. It's perverse. That is not God's way. They could not adopt the dehumanizing practices of paganism and also live with a love-your-neighbor type of attitude or the self-governance of, well, we'll do what we think and we'll pick these bits from the Lord's word. Moses' challenge was answered, wasn't it? Who comes to his side? The sons of Levi. Now, that was Moses and Aaron's tribe. We're told that in Exodus 2. This tribe show their faithfulness to the Lord in sharp focus against the sin that's pervasive in the camp. And we've got to understand here, I know the text is blunt, but the Levites did not go through the camp just maliciously murdering anyone that they could, you know, like a game of tick. Just grab that one. There's a method here. There is proportionality. We've got a God of justice who's just given a whole ton of laws about what to do in different situations. They obediently handed over to the Lord. That is what is going on when someone in this situation was being killed. It is, you are going to your maker. The best place for you is in his hands, the perfect judge, which each of us will face when our lives end. Whether they're taken from us in some horrific way or we die of natural causes, we will go to the maker. They handed them over to the Lord. Those who insisted on being wild animals in God's camp, they killed those who had made the choice to become and live as God's enemies and enemies of his people. The camp had got out of control. It was terrorized by sin and it threatened to destroy the whole community and indeed, all nations who might be blessed through this tribe of people. And isn't it interesting, Aaron, the enabler, well, he wasn't executed. What's going on there? Wait a sec. Certainly he deserved to be. Is this, oh, he's your brother, so just look after Aaron. Well, Deuteronomy 9.20 states that Moses interceded for him in order to save his life. The death penalty was on him. It shows that Aaron's only hope is the mercy of God. He would spend, think about this, the next 40 years, day after day, year after year, as the high priest, offering sacrifices on behalf of the people for the forgiveness of sins, 
Surely this man would now know deep down that he is among the chief of sinners. He was on show to all. There was no hiding. He is a rebel who assisted the breaking of the commandments of God and lives because of the grace and mercy of God. Now, you know, this mercy sounds wonderful, doesn't it, when it's applied to us? But it sounds like God is a pushover judge when it comes to our enemies, doesn't it? Ed Welch, the pastoral counselor, said, We like mercy for ourselves and justice for others. To be merciful and just is a tricky combination, isn't it? If you think about it, without divine guidance, he says, you will begin to think that mercy is unjust and justice is unmerciful. Can you see the switch? Without God's revelation, mercy is unjust and justice is unmerciful. Exodus 32 is a very sobering account showing us the severity of sin, the punishment required, the holiness of God. But you see, it also points forward. It points forward to a power that overthrows idolatry. And this is where we close. Because we need this. Look at verses 30 and 32. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have, command, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. This is a massive moment as Moses steps up to be the leader the people need. He recognizes the severity of the situation. Moses has placed himself between God and the people. He's put his own comfort, his own life on the line to preserve the community. He knew somehow that someone needed to step in and rescue them. And in the context of the tabernacle sacrificial system, all the stuff he's been told and revealed by God, told about, this is how you're going to live, this is the worship system, these are the sacrifices. Perhaps Moses was starting to see, well, a greater sacrifice is needed for, for such a, a, a wayward people. Look at us. Could there be a substitute that will bring an end to this problem, that will bring life to many? And these verses offer, offer a very early glimpse into what was necessary to make proper atonement for sin. Not the sacrifice of an animal, but the sacrifice of a person. But what does God do? Interesting, he rejects Moses' offer in verse 33. The guilty will pay. Each person's sin on them. Now Moses' death won't make things right. He isn't suitable. He does not have the capital to see it through. Moses is not pure and blameless. The substitute must be one without blemish or fault. It must be someone who is able to bear the burden of another person's guilt. And when we read in verses 33 to 34 that only the guilty will be punished... The substitutionary death of Christ, therefore, doesn't represent a change in God's saving plan. His son is not the, a mistake here. 
The great mystery of the death of Jesus Christ is that he was guilty, counted guilty. Our sins put on him, even though he's righteous and pure. And they're taken off us. He is worthy of bearing our guilt because he himself was without guilt. As the song Amazing Love puts it, Amazing Love, oh what sacrifice, the Son of God given for me. My debt he pays, my death he dies, that I might live. You see, the cross solves the dilemma of God's mercy and justice. His justice is fully satisfied by the very costly price of his son's death. His mercy and love are fully expressed to us as he gives us eternal life through Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, this power, this is the power, this is the treasure that breaks the idols, the love of Christ in us. Rejoicing in his love means that we want to love Christ so much more that we are not enslaved to those other attachments. They lose their hooks. They don't wrap us up the same way. They don't taste as good. They don't quench the thirst because we have Christ. John Harper was traveling to the USA to become a pastor of a church called Moody Church. It's based in Chicago. He'd been saved from drowning three times in his life, but he died after giving his life jacket to another as the Titanic went down. Swimming in the carnage amidst the cries and screams, John Harper urged people around him to trust Christ. Four years later, in 1916, one man speaking in Ontario testified that he boarded the Titanic as a careless, godless sinner. When he found himself struggling in the ocean, he caught hold of something and clung to it for dear life. He said the wail of awful distress from the perishing was ringing in his ears. When there floated nearby me a man who too seemed to be clinging to something. He called to me, is your soul saved? I replied, no, it is not. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Later, he heard this man call out this message to others as they sank beneath the waters to eternity. There and then with two miles of water beneath me, the man continues, in utter desperation, I cried to Christ to save me. I believed on Jesus and I was saved. After a few minutes, he heard Harper say, I'm going down, I'm going down. Then, no, I'm going up. Even humor in those last minutes, but truth, I'm going up. Because he knew where home was. He knew the treasure as one colossal earthly treasure was sinking into the Atlantic. There were people recognizing that will never last. There is life in the Lord who has given his life that we might never look anywhere else for satisfaction, safety, security, purpose, hope, eternity. It's in Christ. And whether it's in the grit and grind of ordinary life or in the chaos of a tragic disaster, know, church family, that no idols will be able to match the treasure of Christ.
And so as we close, I'm just going to read the Apostle Paul's words here, which sum this up so well to the Philippian Christians in chapter 3 of that letter. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, who, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, rubbish. The Greek word is even stronger than that that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What a treasure we have in knowing Christ. Run to him. Let the idols fall away. Heavenly Father, Please would you take our hearts and minds. We consecrate them to you. We say we are yours. Lord, forgive us of the sins that we continue to dabble in, to run back to, the things that promise so much and yet do not deliver because they are not you. Lord Jesus, this week I pray for each one of us in this room, wherever we stand with you, whether as an unbeliever with lots of questions, doubts and skepticism, whether as a Christian who's walked many, many years with you and everyone in between where we're carrying hurts and pains, whether we're in a good season of life, that we would, by your grace, know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Would you do that this week, Father, in a new way for your glory? Amen.